This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. It's Obehave with Arden Moore. This show that teaches you how to have harmony in the household with your pets. Join Arden as she travels coast to coast to help millions better understand why cats and dogs do what they do. Get the latest scoop on famous faces. They're perfectly pampered pets in Who's Walking Who in Rin Tin Tinseltown. From famous pet experts and best-selling authors to television and movie stars, you'll get the latest buzz from wagging tongues and tails. Garner great pet tips and have a doggone fur-flying fun time. So get ready for the pause and applause as we unleash your all-behave host, America's pet edutainer, Arden Moore. Welcome to the Obehave Show on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Arden Moore. Hey, listeners, 2018 is the year of the dog. Woof! Time for a canine celebration. So it's fitting that we have a doggone bona fide canine and history expert on our show today. And she has got some mighty strong typing fingers, too, because this New York Times bestselling author has written, ready for it, more than 100 books for kids. And today she's here to unleash her latest must-get book. It's called Dog Days of History. Please give pause and applause to the prolific and talented Sarah Albee. Hey, welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. That was an impressive string of puns there. I wish I'd known you when I was writing this book. Oh, I am the pun master. Sorry. Buckle up, Sarah. (laughs) No, I enjoyed it immensely. You know, I I really did enjoy, here we go, pawing through the pages of your book because everyone, each page, it showcases why we two-leggers, we're just fortunate to share the planet with dogs. And Sarah Albee is going to be our canine guide right after we take this quick commercial break. So you all know the drill, sit and stay. We'll be right back. Time for a pause. Four furry ones actually sit and stay. All behave, we'll be right back. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Obehave is back with more tail-wagging ways to achieve harmony in the household with your pets. Now back to your fetching host, America's pet edutainer, Arden Moore. Welcome back to the Obehave Show on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Arden Moore. Move over, Alex Trebek. I mean, really, when it comes to canine trivia, our special guest, Sarah Albee, reigns as top dog. She has authored, yep, I said it, 100 books for kids, and she's here to chat about her latest book. It's called Dog Days of History, the incredible story of our best friends. You know, we got to dive right in, okay, Sarah? 
I'd love to. I love talking dogs. <laughs> and uh, just is Rosie kind of your dog right now, kind of being right next to you, watching or listening, or is she somehow got sonar hearing from afar to make sure she gets mentioned by you? Well, Rosie has this charming way of ringing a bell that is attached to the doorknob when she wants to go outside. Oh, she's yeah. very smart. But she sometimes she sort of baps it like a boxer just when she's bored and I'm not paying enough attention to her. So luckily the bell is downstairs and I'm upstairs. But yeah, I think she's sitting next to her bell right now. Um, I'm just saying this is another classic case. I'm an animal behaviorist of who trained who, right? You got it. Absolutely. <laughs> That's Rosie one. Sorry, zero. Sarah, zero. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you've written a lot of books. I'm looking on your site. And folks, after our show, please dash over to her website. It's Sarah Albee Books. And it's S-A-R-A-H-A-L-B-E-E books.com. Two really popped into my face and radar. One is called Bugged, How Insects Changed History. And my other personal favorite, Poop Happened. Well, I'm especially proud of the subtitle of that one, which is A History of the World from the Bottom Up. But, yeah. you know, what I like to do, what I like to do with my longer history books for kids who are slightly older, you know, eight and up, yes. I like to trace history chronologically from ancient times to present day and I like to trace one thing through history that hopefully is appealing to kids. In this case, it's dogs, and in the other cases, it's, it was, you know, insects, how insects have changed history, and then before that, it was the history of sanitation, but I, I actually have one that just came out in September. It's called Poison, and that's, you know, how people have poisoned each other through the ages. My goal is to get kids, A, to love history and see how fun and cool it can be, but also to kind of make connections chronologically. When I was growing up, I, you know, when I was in school, I would we would study ancient Rome and ancient right. Greece or whatever, ancient Egypt. And I had really not much of a sense of what came first and what came next. So I'm hoping kids will come away. Kids who love dogs will come away like with uh, some idea of the events of history as well. So that's Well, little, I think, uh, I think you're going to do it. And the third accomplishment is you're getting them to read. Oh my yeah. dog. Right. That's pretty good. <laughs> so, from what I understand, folks, I've got the book right in my hands, and I've read it to my dogs, Cleo, Kona, and Bujo. They give it all four oh. paws up, and then they had to go belly up because their paws are all up. So you got, in our household, <laughs> unanimous four paw rating. I think that's pretty cool you got there, Sarah. They probably got a belly rub. They did, and a treat. You know, they're they, no they dumb. Yeah, yeah. So who I love is training who, right? That is right. <laughs> um, there's really cool titles in this book, listeners. Some of them are like Barking Up the Family Tree, No Bone Unturned, Who Let the Dogs In, Who, 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 and Ad Dogs, Glad Dogs, Sad Dogs, and Bad Dogs, which sounds like you've got influence channeling your inner Dr. Seuss on that one. Yeah. That was fun. I like <laughs> puns too. That's why we're getting along so well. That's right. That's right. So I don't want to share all the gems of the book, but I would like to show a little bit. And then I want the listeners to get to know a little bit about you too, Sarah. So one of the things I thought was interesting is on page 32, you have dug up the source for the word curtailed and it goes back to medieval time. Uh, yeah. Do you want to share that with our right. listeners? Sure. Well, back in medieval times, there was a sort of a sorry history of rulers and nobility who kind of took over a lot of peasants' land and towns and things so that they could go hunting. 
And so it was only the king's dogs and the, you know, high nobility dogs that were allowed to sort of run slipshod all over the place. And people, sort of ordinary people's dogs, were they were allowed to have dogs, but they were supposed to be for herding or guard dogs and that sort of thing. And so the word cur comes from medieval law that required regular dogs to have their tails cropped. Right. Um, and the word was curtailed. And so cur is short for, there's curtail and then cur. So <laughs> that's kind of how that name came to pass. I sure hope there weren't a lot of huskies at that time because that would be a tough crop, you know? Yeah. There's not some great, his, I mean, there's some sort of sad history in here and you can't avoid it really. There, you know, some dogs, there have been vicious war dogs and the dogs of the conquistadors who did a lot of terrible things once they got to the new world. But I do add that it really isn't, dogs have been, are so eminently trainable and they're so willing and wishing to please their owners that it's really about the owners who have trained dogs to do terrible things. It's not that dogs are inherently terrible at all. Well, also speaking, let's go chronologically, let's go to the Renaissance period. And I was like blown away by the image on page 41 and they're making uh, food on a spit. You want to share what the poor dog had to oh, do? Oh, yeah. You know, well, backing up a bit, dogs as pets have yes. been kind of a luxury reserve for the wealthy until the late 19th century or so. Before that, most dogs, like most people, had to work for a living. So there was this one job that certain dogs had called a turnspit dog. And these sort of low-to-the-ground, dirty little dogs would be put into what looks like a giant hamster wheel, and they would have to turn this wheel, which in turn was rigged to a pulley, which turned the spit on the roasting meat. So turnspit dogs were had to do that. But dogs have had to do that sort of thing, like they've had to pull carts and they've had to they had like dog powered sewing machines in the 19th century and they oh, had you're dog kidding. powered butter churns no it's amazing what dogs have done and some dogs are kind of bred to pull stuff i mean even these days like bernie's mountain dogs like to pull and like i know people who own them and love them and treat them beautifully but they give them stuff to pull sometimes cuz that's what they like to do so well i have Bujo's a mostly bernie's mountain dog in our house and she likes to pull things like the flying disc out of my hand but you know yeah, so no, so dogs did have to work for a living. And so the wealthy who had the luxury of having hunting dogs and little lap dogs, the, the small dogs, they have a fun history too. They were, you know, forks weren't widely used until the mid 1600s. So before that, people ate with their fingers. And so dogs were used as table napkins often. <laughs> Just all kinds of crazy stuff. And as foot warmers and hand warmers and bed warmers and like the Puritans would go to, to the, those long hours and hours and hours long sermons and they would bring their dogs to warm their feet. Well, my other dog, Cleo, is only 12 pounds, so I guess I'm going to save on my utensils. Hey, Cleo, come over here. I need to eat. There you go. <laughs> you know, you also, you know, you got into the modern times and well, I, first, I want to go back to Sir Isaac Newton, because I want you to tell the tale about Diamond, because this proves no matter what, dogs get forgiveness. Yeah, that's a bad story for a writer, especially, because the idea of destroying a manuscript 
for which there is no backup is a really bad story. It makes me wake up in the middle of the night in horror, in a cold sweat. But yeah, Newton's dog did, well, the story goes that Newton's dog, Diamond, sort of tipped over a lamp or a candle and set fire to his manuscript that he'd been working on forever and ever, and he had to write it all over again. But he was forgiven, the dog. So... There you go. That story. Well, Happy ending. And then the other one, uh, I know people know a lot of the uh, presidents that have had dogs and cats and other, even pigs in the White House. But there were two that I was hoping you could share. One was about Teddy Roosevelt's dog, Pete, with uh, a non-ami oh, yeah. from France and uh, Khrushchev with JFK's daughter, Caroline. Right. Okay. So Theodore Rezo had, actually he had a lot of pets and his daughter Alice was like so really famously eccentric and cool and fun. She had a pet snake that she loved to scare people with. Theodore Roosevelt's dog Pete was a bull terrier and he was kind of a menace at the White House. He would like chase people and like he like chased the French ambassador up a tree and even took a chunk out of his trousers. And he had a long time out, I think, for like two years before he was allowed to come home, to come back. And then there was a dog. Well, we know that the Russians sent two dogs up into outer space successfully, Belka and Strelka. And one of them, I think it was Strelka, gave birth to a litter of puppies. And Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union, gave one of those puppies to JFK's daughter, Caroline. And they named her Pushinka, which is Russian for fluffy. That's really cool. Hey, folks, we're speaking with a New York Times bestselling author, Sarah Albee, and her book is called Dog Days of History, The Incredible Story of Our Best Friends. It just came out. It's through National Geographic. We're going to learn more about Sarah as an author and a person, including a little fun facts, right after we take this quick commercial break. So sit and stay. We'll be right back. Time for a walk on the red carpet, of course. All Behave will be back in a flash right after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Hi, I'm Dean Koontz, and you're listening to Oh Behave with Arden Moore on Pet Life Radio. We're back from the lot. Just checked the paper, and we had a record showing at the box. The letterbox, that is. Now back to Oh Behave. Here's Arden. Welcome back to the Behave Show on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Arden Moore. All right, I'm going to say it. I'm having a doggone good time with you, Sarah. Uh, you are a uh, possum. How's that? Am I going? Here you go. But really, you do a lot of research, and your market are kids up to 12 or 13 years old. So there's a special writing style, I'm assuming you, you have mastered. And what is it that has appealed to you to target this age group? You know, I love writing for this age group from 8 to 12 years old. They're old enough to kind of appreciate jokes and humor and sort of read more complex 
stories and things, but they smell a rat. They know if they're being talked down to or preached to. So there's something really honest and genuine about this age. I love, love, love writing for them. And in fact, I got my start at Sesame Street. My first job out of college was was working at Sesame Street, where I worked for nine years. And that's where I, I decided I wanted to write for kids. So I started with a preschool background, but as I've kind of gotten older and written more, it's really my sweet spot is grades like third through eight. I just love writing for this age group. What was your gig at? I know you were there for nine years. What did you do at Sesame Street? You well, weren't in the big bird I mean, costume, I, were you? I was not, but you know, you start out low on the totem pole when you're fresh out of college. And But by the time I left there, I did a lot of writing for their books. There's a very thriving publishing department there. And I, I realized I am more of a print person than a screen writer type. I worked on the music. I worked on the international. It was It was a really, really wonderful place to work. What about the people that donned the uh, costumes like Big Bird? How were they? They were fantastic. And the guy who played Big Bird, I mean, that's really a complex thing. I mean, he had to be in great shape. And it was a person inside the costume. And his right hand was raised up over his head, which manipulated the beak. And then the left hand oh. manipulated one of Big Bird's wings. So if you if you notice, his other wing is kind of just sort of flopping there because there's no hand in it. But he would have to look through this little camera through the feathers of Big Bird's neck to be able to sort of see his way out. But he was amazing. He could ride a unicycle. He could do all kinds of stuff. Can you imagine so, filling out your taxes? Okay. Occupation, Big Bird. <laughs> I know. And and at, at one point, at least, he was probably the most famous, one of the most famous characters in America. And, you know, to have no one recognize you on the street, it's actually kind of a great thing, I would think. Kind of the best I, I, of both I would think worlds. so, too. I think I would like to be famous with a veneer that no one knows so I can go anywhere. And so, darn it, That's I wish right. I was uh, tall like you. I could have been Big Bird, but, you know. And speaking of that, it's kind of weird. It says you grew up in the Midwest in Ohio, but, I mean, you were born there, but you grew up in Vermont. And just how short were you in seventh grade? Because your poor mom and dad had to buy a lot of clothes for you in 18 months. <laughs> I know. I grew seven inches in one year. I, I can't remember exactly how tall I was in seventh grade, but I was one of the shortest girls in the class. And then I topped out at 5'10", uh -huh. and I took up basketball, as oh. people do. A girl is 5'10", they put a ball in your hands. And I loved it, and I ended up playing it for many years. I played in college. I played after college. I played a little semi-pro basketball. I met my future husband on the basketball court. So I'm a big basketball fan. She shoots. She scores a marriage. That's cool. <laughs> um, now, were you a center or a forward? Well, when I played in high school, I was a forward. When I, I actually played in, when I played in Egypt, I was kind of a Strangely, I was a center because I was one, which is not my position, but yeah. it was kind of a version of it being a center. And then after that, when when I was playing in New York City and in men's leagues, I sort of shot from the outside a lot. <laughs> so you're, a, you're a point guard. I'm an ex-sports writer, so I spent 20 years as a reporter. So, oh, yeah, so I was thinking, oh, she's, you know, just by the height and the age of time when you were playing. You also were on the track team, too. So what was your sport there? What was your, what you do? I in was a jumper. I was a high jump oh. hurdles long jump kind of thing so nice nice oh yeah, and uh, folks she also plays the violin and she loves opera i mean come on you have such a boring existence sarah <laughs> <laughs> 
I do think I have the best job in the world because, you know, as a nonfiction writer, you know, you can sort of pursue any interest that you have and learn about it and write about it. It kind of is the greatest job. Oh, we have a little bit of... And I am interested in stuff. Well, I've written only 35 books, so I'm only a third of the way from you. And I used to work (laughs) at Prevention Magazine, and I do a lot of nonfiction as well, mostly dogs, cats, and then I do some ghostwriting for doctors, but... I'm like you. It's, oh. Isn't it nice to learn new things and be able to share it? It's absolutely the best. And I suspect that some of my books are shorter than a lot of your books. So I think well, we're... That's we're, okay. No, no worries. pretty impressive <laughs> that you've written that many. <laughs> well, all right. And folks, this is really impressive. Sarah knows how to speak a little Italian, French, and Arabic. And so when you were playing basketball in Egypt and you didn't like a call, what would you say in Arabic to a ref? Well... Arabic is a lovely, flowery language, so it's not like you had curse words. You had sort of really kind of poetic ways of expressing your displeasure. So okay. there's one that that means, may God darken your day, and there's one that's, may a truck run over you, and... I mean, there. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't use those very often. Let's just say I might have muttered them under my breath. That's but okay. it is. I mean, it's a, like when I I was working in an office there, and I I would call Lila in you know the accounts payable department, and you ha- you can't just ask the question that you have. You have to start with, oh, hello, Lila, may your day be full of cream. And she'll say, oh, hello, Sarah, may your day be full of light. And you say, may your day be full of honey, may your day be full of this. And then you say, okay, here's my question. There so, you go. I mean, it's, it's lovely. It really is. And I'm looking at the clock. Don't worry. I hear your folks in the background. We're going to wrap this up pretty soon. But a couple of more gems from your book. And the book is called Dog Days of History, The Incredible Story of Our Best Friends. It's from National Geographic and the talented Sarah Albee. Let's go with Dr. Freud, Sigmund Freud, and his chow, chow, uh, is it pronounced Yofi? Yofi, yeah. Uh, so. Yofi had a, like yeah, a, like German, a inner I... clock dog. I mean, what was happening when... Yeah, uh, he or she, I, I, I can't even remember if it's a he or she, but the dog would yawn at 50-minute mark <laughs> so that Freud didn't have to look at his clock and, and know <laughs> that the time was up for the next patient. The dog was also very sensitive to the the patient's mood. And if the patient was anxious, Yofi would move away. And if the patient needed some comfort, Yofi... So it was one of those amazing service dogs before they were called service dogs, I think. Comforting oh, that's dogs. great. So what's the takeaway message you want to give all our listeners, especially our young listeners? We have 750,000 all over the planet. And as I mentioned uh, to you before we went on the air, we're doubly delighted for the second year in a row. Oprah Winfrey has picked our podcast, Behave, as one of the top three pet podcasts. So you got a platform here, Sarah. What is something you want to tell your audience about Dog Days of History? Oh, I have, there's so many fun stories in there. I, I wish we had 20 minutes and I could tell you all of them. I'll tell you one cool fact from there. Okay. Um, the gentlemen in the Renaissance, you know, were the upper class nobility would have a sword that as part of their outfit. After that went out of fashion, gentlemen started walking with walking sticks because walking sticks were not to help them walk, but they were really useful for thwacking away possibly rabid dogs that roamed the cities. So I just love that cool connection like with fashion and medical history and and dogs. It's just fun when you kind of can make that cool connection of a lot of different subject areas in one. 
That was just one thing. I have a bunch. That's all right. You know what? You do your research and you do it well. And it's been a real pleasure to have you as a guest on our show, Sarah. And for all the folks, go to sarahalbebooks.com. It's S-A-R-A-H-A-L-B-E-E books.com. We also at this time want to thank our producer, Mark Winter. He is the Wizard of Pause. Pet Life Radio is the number one on the planet. And until next time, this is your flea-free host, Arden Moore, delivering just two words to all you two, three, and four-leggers out there. Oh, behave. Coast to coast and around the world, it's all behave with Arden Moore. Find out why cats and dogs do the things they do and get the latest buzz from wagging tongues and tails in Rin Tin Tinseltown. From famous pet experts and best-selling authors to television and movie stars, you'll get great tail-wagging pet tips and have a fur-flying fun time. All behave with America's pet edutainer, Arden Moore, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs>